Welcome to the Red Med Podcast, Rescue, Expedition and Disaster Medicine, where we provide a platform for healthcare professionals working in or aspiring to join rescue, expedition and disaster response teams, a platform to share information, advice and opportunities and connect like-minded Red Med individuals in our community. Good afternoon and welcome to episode 25 of the Red Med Podcast, Rescue, Expedition and Disaster Medicine. I'm Chris Gibson, enjoying another SOS Coffee, coffee which we sell to support the Guatemala community through education initiatives and medical missions. So following on from the last podcast on telemedicine, and in line with the current global situation, I thought I'd talk a little today about COVID-19 in the context of rescue expedition and disaster medicine. So what is it? How does it impact us? How can we protect ourselves, particularly during humanitarian operations or in densely populated camps, uh, disaster response situations, and during medical missions in developing nations? So so what is it? What is COVID-19? Well, it's related to SARS and MERS. It's from the same coronavirus family. SARS-CoV-2 is the name of the virus. And COVID-19, or coronavirus disease, 2019, is the name of the disease itself. So the WHO indicate, the World Health Organization, indicate that the incubation period is from 1 to 14 days. Uh, Generally, or the average is 5 days. Symptoms present after 5 days. But some patients are presented up to 28, 29 days later. And they claim that 20 to 30% of the population who are infected may be asymptomatic, which certainly makes it problematic to detect, uh, and particularly as it presents very similar to a range of other infections. Uh, So without widespread testing, a lot of the cases might go untracked. So it's a viral disease which affects the respiratory tract and can lead to pneumonia in susceptible patients. To date, there have been over 100,000 infections, with fortunately over 80% being mild uh, and most people recover. 18 to 20% of people suffer severe disease, with the death rate to date being around about 2%. That's obviously varying by region and healthcare capability. It would seem that the disease is now in over 90 countries, and it's possible likely that medics on expeditions, disaster relief or humanitarian operations or even overland trips might come into contact with infected patients. To put it into context, in the last few years, between 12,000 and 60,000 people a year have died in the USA alone of influenza and up to 900,000 people have died globally of influenza, the common flu. The difference is that we understand how flu works and how it moves, how it's transmitted. Um, Are we looking at a pandemic on the scale of 1918, on the scale of the Spanish flu, 
which killed millions of people. Who knows? I think it's too early to tell. Certainly transport links are better, connecting the global population, making transmission easier. But equally, detection and healthcare methods are far better and countries are already taking great steps to uh, prevent and contain the virus. So as a respiratory disease, it's often transmitted through respiratory droplets from coughs and sneezes. But transmission can also allegedly be transmitted via airborne particles or airborne droplets. If it lands on surfaces, it might live for several days, although the evidence is yet to be seen. But it may live for several days on surfaces and transmission could be passed through person-to-person contact or even secondary contact through touching surfaces and then touching the mouth, nose or the eyes. Signs and symptoms. Runny nose, dry cough, headache, fever, general malaise and difficulty breathing. Sounds very much like a lot of other diseases initially in the early stages particularly in the tropics, particularly in Latin America. Sounds like influenza, early stages of dengue, malaria, Zika, chikungunya, pneumonia. Uh, So the differential diagnoses should be wide, but certainly in areas where there are outbreaks of the disease, healthcare providers should maintain a high suspicion of coronavirus or COVID-19 until proven otherwise and take the necessary precautions. So general preventative measures might include, as with most things, regular hand washing, good quality hand washing with soap and water, 30 seconds to two minutes, the back of the hands, the palms of the hands, between the fingers, the fingernails, the fingertips, the wrists, uh, to decontaminate and get those particles off the hands. If you can't wash your hands, there's no soap and water available, which quite often happens on expeditions or in humanitarian operations, then alcohol gel. Using sufficient alcohol gel with sufficient contact time in the same manner, rubbing the back of the hands, the palms, in between the fingers, fingertips, fingernails, the wrists, um, creating friction and having sufficient contact time to uh, destroy the virus. Covering coughs and sneezes to trap those respiratory droplets, um, ideally with a tissue, and then putting the tissue in a, a bin, closing the lid, or better still, flushing it down the toilet, and then washing the hands again as many times as it takes after every cough and sneeze, bin the tissue, and wash the hands. Second nature for a lot of healthcare providers, but really this is a, it needs to be a holistic approach. Everybody needs to be involved to prevent this or really healthcare education is key. We need to educate the communities that we work in, whether it be the participants on an expedition, displaced persons in a, in a camp, refugees, uh, but we need to start passing a message, supervise it, implement it and continue to promote it. Italy and Iran have already canceled large scale public events from football matches and concerts to even church services and large markets perhaps we should be doing that in other countries cancelling the uh, social gatherings reducing social contact or increasing the distance between people Um, some restaurants in Italy are having a a minimum distance of one metre between people um, as they dine so maybe we should be taking these proactive steps 
as quickly as possible, as early as possible to prevent the disease uh, before it's too late. Once it starts to, um, outbreaks start to occur, then we need to contain it. We need to mitigate its effects and it's a little bit more difficult then. So medics on mountain, jungle and desert expeditions may be well away from large populations or large gatherings and certainly on the side of the mountain or on a jungle you're likely to have fresh air and, and great ventilation which is going to help reduce the transmission but equally in these situations hand washing is going to become more difficult hygiene often suffers during expeditions um, clean flowing water might be limited and therefore we're going to have to implement constant hand cleaning with with alcohol gel making sure we've got enough of it so we might have fresh air, we might be well away from the general population whilst on expedition, but how do we get there? How do we get back? A lot of expeditions take public transport, whether it be local buses or local planes, taxis, uh, or even international planes to get there. So consider how you protect yourself and the participants on the way to your remote location and on the way back, particularly in uh, endemic countries. Medics working on humanitarian operations in locations perhaps such as Yemen, although to date Yemen doesn't have any cases, uh, may face significant challenges, particularly due to the large amount of people living in close proximity in camps, whether they be refugees or displaced persons. Um, this might have a significant impact on EMS staff at the European border as refugees attempt to cross the border in large numbers from affected countries. So in the likes of Turkey, Italy, uh, where we're seeing a lot of refugees arriving and they're being contained in camps on the border, likely to see outbreaks in these places. So the key issues we face are close proximity of people with potentially weakened immune systems or pre-existing conditions. This disease to date seems to be impacting more um, the geriatric population or people with uh, pre-existing conditions, diabetes, lung disease, and it doesn't appear to be impacting young, healthy people or the paediatric population as much at the moment. So following on from episode 24 on telemedicine, telemedicine is an excellent way to prevent the spread or contain the spread of this disease or to help contain an outbreak. That way, patients or healthcare providers can call specialists, seek specialist advice from a distance, and then if they've got mild disease, they can stay at home with basic supportive care. That way, they're not going to propagate the disease on public transport, in hospital waiting rooms, in clinics throughout the country. And only when symptoms start to deteriorate or difficulty breathing, dyspnea becomes a problem, um, should they seek pre-hospital care, ambulances, or even presented hospitals. But ideally, where hospitalisation is required or critical care is required, patients, and particularly pre-hospital providers, ambulance providers, paramedics, nurses, doctors, should consider four key elements. Use PPE, use appropriate PPE, whether it be gloves, suits, goggles, uh, masks, and gloves, prior to any contact with a suspected patient. Then, if you suspect the patient has got an infectious disease and does require transport because of difficulty breathing, pneumonia or the like, 
then pre-alert the receiving facility. Pre-alert them and receive permission from that hospital to transport the patient there, making sure they've got the facilities available to receive that patient. They've got a critical care bed. They've got the ability to receive the patient without contaminating everybody in the waiting room or the A&E department. Um, They've got the ability to isolate that patient if necessary. Third thing is decontaminate the ambulance and medical equipment. We'll talk more about that later. And then once it's decontaminated, carefully remove and dispose of the PPE appropriately so you don't contaminate your underlying uniform or skin. So four steps. Use PPE, pre-alert the receiving facility and get permission, decontaminate the ambulance after service and then appropriately remove and dispose of the PPE. So putting it back into humanitarian context or the RedMed context, these sphere standards or the human humanitarian charter and minimum standards in humanitarian response, their standards guideline provides all the basic actions for humanitarian operations, which are transferable across to the mitigation of this disease. So the WASH principles, water and sanitation, healthcare provision or hygiene provision, those basic principles, those core WASH principles are what we need to educate the camp population in what we need to provide and supervise to help prevent the spread of this disease or to contain it and mitigate the uh, the effects of it. The document essentially calls for interoperability and a holistic approach. So healthcare workers need to be involved with community leaders and with the affected community from the outset, promoting healthcare education, good hygiene practices, hand washing um, and our responsibility really is prevention to prevent it arriving at these camps in the first place but then if it does arrive and it would appear that it is spreading fairly rapidly then we need to mitigate the impact of it how can we mitigate it how can we prevent this really from crippling our population maybe with again good hygiene measures good diet, good food security, vaccination programs, reducing the vulnerability of the potentially affected population. So we need to implement a good early warning, early response system. Good disease surveillance, identify local outbreaks very, very quickly and then trigger the appropriate response actions, making sure that we're well prepared with the right protocols and right procedures and right PPE. PPE might include... Gowns, gloves, goggles, masks, decontamination equipment, um, N95 masks, not surgical masks, they're not adequate, uh, but N95 masks that are going to filter out 95% of the uh, particles in the atmosphere. But who needs to use them? It seems there's been a lot of panic buying, there's a lot of shelves. Walmart across the world seems to have empty shelves and a lot of other Home Depot Uh, as preppers and panicked communities seem to go out and buy all of these resources. But who needs to be using this equipment? At this stage, masks don't need to be used by everybody. Those that definitely need access to N95 masks are infected people, patients. Patients should wear masks to contain those respiratory droplets 
to stop the spread of the infection through coughs and sneezes. Healthcare workers, whether it be in camps, ambulances or hospitals, should also work, um, should also wear these masks when in close proximity with potentially infected patients to break the cycle and the propagation of the infection. Also home carers, any family member or home carer looking after a potentially sick person demonstrating these signs and symptoms or an expedition participant who suddenly got a fever with a dry cough, runny nose, headache, general malaise, both the carer and the patient should be wearing the masks to provide as much protection as possible and prevent the spread of the disease until proved otherwise. But certainly the general population particularly with adequate social distancing, good hygiene measures, good ventilation. Everybody doesn't need to be wearing masks at this stage. Early diagnosis is vital to contain the spread, but as we know, there's definitely been global challenges trying to create and distribute sufficient test kits. Um, various countries are working hard, uh, including private companies, pharmaceutical companies, the CDC are, are trying to push out these test kits as quickly as possible but each agency or cluster will have their own policy guided by the World Health Organization but will generally include isolation of suspected cases to prevent the potential spread of the disease to the, the general population. Whilst viral infections obviously don't require antibiotics vulnerable or susceptible individuals might develop secondary bacterial infections uh, and therefore testing and antibiotics should be available in, in camps. Hygiene definitely continues to be the essential element to break the chain of the spread, um, reduce the likelihood. So hand washing, cleaning of surfaces constantly is really, really important to promote. Instead of going out and buying fancy antiviral, antibacterial liquids, which are in scarce supply in some countries, in some regions, and can be particularly expensive. The World Health Organization provides guidance online for the use of chlorine, which remains a cheap, multi-purpose halogen for the treatment of water, contaminated surfaces with body fluids, and general surfaces that are frequently touched in public areas. So uh, for the disinfection of areas contaminated with body fluids, vomit, respiratory droplets, urine, feces, blood... Uh, it's recommended that you use a, a 1 in 10 solution. So using standard 5% household bleach, you can dilute 1 cup of bleach with 9 cups of water to provide a 1 in 10 solution or a 0.5% chlorine solution. And that is a strong chlorine solution to de decontaminate or disinfect areas contaminate with body fluids. For all other surfaces and general cleaning, so taps, door handles, beds, uh, vehicle door handles, bus seats, things like that. You can use a weaker chlorine solution, which is 1 in 100, or 1 cup of chlorine to 99 cups of water to provide a 0.05% solution. And the WHO indicate that that is adequate for general cleaning. Um, chlorine, it's cheap, it's flexible, and I think everybody should have a stock of bleach in the house on site in humanitarian camps just to provide you flexibility um, you can even use it for industrial treatment of water i've used it in uh, in camps to treat containers of thirty thousand liters of water 
Obviously, the concentration, the dilution needs to be different. Uh, and we look at water treatment on a small scale, on a survival scale, a personal scale, and a huge camp scale in a, a separate podcast. But hopefully those key points were useful. I'm sure you've heard the messages across the world, all over the news, all over social media. These key points are taken from trustworthy sources from the CDC, from the World Health Organization. And the message really is standard. Don't panic, educate the population, keep the healthcare population safe, use the appropriate PPE when it's necessary, good hand hygiene, good respiratory hygiene, coughing and sneezing into tissues or into masks, washing hands uh, and cleaning surfaces. So wherever you are in the world, stay safe, spread the message uh, and let's try and contain this issue before it gets any bigger. All the best, stay safe, we'll speak soon.